0: Hello, and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alexandreau. Germany got used to the idea, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, that Europe was united and peaceful, that the end of history had come. Nowhere, perhaps, did Francis Fukuyama's famous saying meet a more willing audience than in Germany. Those were the words of Jeremy Cliff, who spoke to me recently about Germany's policy towards Russia. My guest today started his professional life as an analyst focusing on Soviet as-was security. He has led companies' Russian relations in both the energy and public affairs sectors, spent six years with NATO, and was the first alliance representative to be based in Moscow. He's an associate fellow of the Russia program at Chatham House and the author of a new book, Germany's Russia Problem, The Struggle for Balance in Europe. Welcome to The Bunker, John Luff. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. John, you started writing this book long before this latest uh, escalation of the Ukraine war. In fact, you recently updated it. And I know that at the very early stages, you floated the title Germany's Russia problem by a German diplomat. And the reply was, does Germany have a Russian problem?
1: What did that attitude reveal? That's absolutely correct. And to be honest, it was one of those things that made me think that I had in fact chosen the right title for the book. Because what I wanted to write about was why and how Germany had approached Russia, a country about which it was extremely knowledgeable, but yet it had treated it with great naivety. And this was the, uh, the, the paradox. So I, I felt that the, that the title had to be sufficiently provocative and yet to encapsulate the, the, the message that I was seeking to communicate. Yeah, and as it, it, it turned out highly prophetic, in the
0: opening passages of the book, I was struck by the words, unlike Germany, Russia has not lost the art of strategic thinking. Can you unpack that for our listeners?
1: Yes the 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 point i was trying to make was that germany had uh, by virtue of its uh, experience after the second world war a divided country that um, then uh, reunified in uh, in 1990 it had had this luxury of outsourcing its security uh, problem if you like its management of security to NATO and, in particular, to the United States, and in some ways, the Allied powers at the end of World War II did not want Germany to have this capacity to think strategically. Um, so it was um, it was farmed out to to others, and Germany lived under the U.S. nuclear umbrella. It wasn't a pleasant experience, of course, being in a divided country for forty five years, but uh, Germany made it through and. Um, the West Germans felt that many of their policies had been justified, and in particular towards the Soviet Union through detente, uh, etc., and the country country unified. And there was this vision of a future, a very optimistic vision of um, a Europe without a division, of Russia integrated into Europe. It was the... I suppose it reflected the euphoria of the unification of Germany, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the liberation of uh, Central Europe from the, the Soviet yoke. And there was this sort of notion that peace was somehow inevitable. And therefore, there was no need to think about the worst case scenario. We saw the German armed forces progressively run down uh, to the point where they have very limited combat capacity these days, as, as has been, I think, recognized in, in many quarters. And Germany spent just generally very little on defense. And it, it reaped the peace dividend. And as a result, it was totally unprepared then for the, the turn that Russia took really after, I would say, the, the Putin administration established itself uh, probably around you know 2005. That's when we saw Russia turning in this direction that was becoming increasingly hostile to the West and to Germany, despite the outwardly friendly relations. So there was a
0: time, you think, when Russia also believed in this sort of joint project of harmony in Europe, but that
1: changed and effectively Germany failed to notice I think you could put it that way. In the case of the Russians, I think it was a brief moment in the 1990s. President Yeltsin didn't uh, bear a grudge against the West. After all, Western countries had supported him when he stood atop that uh, tank um, outside the White House in Moscow in August 1991. So there was a very different atmosphere in relations that probably lasted up to around 1996, sometime like that. And then the enlargement of NATO began to cloud the horizon. People in the Russian establishment became concerned about the degree of influence that Russia would maintain in the newly independent states, including Ukraine. So this was a time of extreme disorientation uh, in Russia, and it was hardly surprising That people with a more traditional and I would say probably imperialist outlook would regain influence. And that's exactly what happened.
0: You devote the opening quarter, I would say, of the book to unpacking the complicated history between Germany and Russia. And you say that Germany's relationship to Russia Russia is guided by, by that history, but not in a cold, factual way. You suggest it shapes how Germany feels. About Russia. Can you explain
1: that a bit? Yeah, this is a very, very important point. This is for Germany an emotional issue. And it's not just related to the Second World War and the um, barbarity of um, Hitler's invasion and the, the, the misery inflicted on vast areas of the former Soviet Union, uh, not exclusively Russia, of course. It goes deeper. Uh, because there is a great admiration in Germany for Russian culture. There's an awareness that Germans and Russians have a distinctive relationship. Germans uh, exercised a very strong influence on the evolution of the Russian state, going back to the days of Peter the Great, and particularly under under Catherine. They're admired in Russia for their engineering prowess, um, for their superior organization. Germans feel that Russians have a degree of spontaneity, creativity, that perhaps somehow they themselves lack. And so there's almost a mutual fascination. And Mm, Germany has been so keen to try to feel that it's not in confrontation with Russia. It feels yeah. that Europe is not complete without the Russians being there too. At least that was their feeling up until probably 24th of February uh, 2022. For them, this full-scale invasion of Ukraine has really shattered their vision of yeah. their bilateral relations and, in fact, the, 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 the shape of Europe as a whole. You devote
0: another section of the book to Russia's influence in Germany. And it's quite striking what you say on soft power. Well, it was striking to me simply because it hadn't occurred to me so consciously that since reunification, there is a chunk of population in Germany that grew up as part of the Eastern Bloc. And so is culturally, linguistically, perhaps politically very close to Russia Do you think Merkel's childhood
1: in what was East Germany is important, actually, in that respect? In her case, it was certainly important, although she was somebody with strong transatlanticist convictions. She nevertheless brought this, I would say, instinctive understanding of Russia, and indeed of Putin himself, and the system from which he'd emerged, when she first first met him as the leader of the opposition um, of the Christian Democrat opposition, I think I note this in the book. She joked to to one of her aides when she went into the meeting, um, "He's going to stare at me, and yes. I have to hold his gaze mm. because these people always try to intimidate you." And that's exactly what she what he did, and she held her gaze. And she was proud of herself as a result. And I think that's a very neat little insight in, into the way she approached him. She knew where he came from. And I think that he knew that she knew. And in many ways, that probably simplified the the, the dialogue between them. Mm. Um, but I think she epitomizes that generation of uh, people who grew up in East Germany with a certain sympathy. And I, I use that word guardedly here for, for Russia, for, for Russian culture um respect uh, most, uh, most most certainly she would probably say that she has positive memories of going to the Soviet Union despite realizing now in retrospect the type of system it was there was no I, I think um, possibly unlike uh, the, you know the case of, of, of Poland perhaps there wasn't this um, instinctive antipathy towards Russians or to the Soviet Union on the part of her generation <music>
0: How is it? My name is Lasetti. I'm a tour leader with Explore. Come on, let me show you something. Oh, careful. Can you see it?
1: Oh, trust me, it can see you. There, between the trees. It's not every day you get to see a rhino on a walk. I guess not everyone is taken to the right places, but you will be if you explore. For global adventures, search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel, explore.
0: Namaskaram, my name is Maya I'm a tour leader with Explore. Come, follow me for a breakfast you will never forget. Namaste. Because you are going to make an incredible masala dosa under the watchful eye of my mom. ma. Each home adds their special touches. Mm. But not everyone gets to join in a traditional family meal. You will if you explore. For global adventures, search exploreworldwide.co.uk and don't just travel, explore. I've had it suggested to me that Germany's decentralised political model and tradition of coalitions uh, plays a big part in its seeming inability to make very quick strategic changes like a US or French president could, or a British PM even. What what do you think of that?
1: That's absolutely true. And this post-war political model that was established for Germany by the occupation powers was intended to do exactly that. And it's mm-hmm. been very successful. The result is slower, consensual decision-making. So in a, a situation that we found ourselves in since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, I think Germany has politically found it difficult to move at speed. And even the very radical speech by Chancellor Scholz on the 27th of February last year, the so-called Seitenwender speech, this, um, this wonderful German word that's now found, it, found its way into English. It was easy to find the words, but then to back this up with action and to start funding the armed forces to taking you know, the necessary decisions has proved extremely difficult. Does that mean that part of our current, I I guess, disappointment with Germany is a sort
0: of global narrative that that saw Germany during more stable times as an always sort of uber efficient, decisive adult in the room, when the truth is that it is complex and flawed with strengths and weaknesses and, and slow moving? So is part of the frustration a sort of longing for a Germany that exists only in international
1: fantasy, actually? To some extent, possibly, yes. But if we think back to 2014, I argue in the book that Angela Merkel, for all the deficiencies of her policies at the time, when we look back at them, she was bold. She led a European response. The United States did not give her a huge amount of uh, support in managing this uh, this crisis um, around Ukraine, and yet Germany established a leadership position for itself. And, you know, Merkel unveiled the and she corralled the EU into supporting sanctions against Russia, which you know we look at them now and think they were very mild, but at the time people thought they were quite tough. This was unprecedented, and she said subsequently that she had wished that they had been tougher. In 2022, Germany was effectively paralysed, and that's because this was all on a different scale. And, and this was now a real war. It wasn't just some minor territorial incursion. Yes, we had the annexation of Crimea, of course, but at that stage, the you know, Ukrainian army was not able to fight. Ukraine could not resist. It didn't have the same level of resilience that it had um, eight years later. So this was an entirely different situation. The Germans were caught out by it. And uh, we, we've seen, I think, overall, a very sort of flat-footed response. But they are gradually getting there. And I think there's a much deeper understanding now of the significance of what has taken place and what it's li- likely to lead to. Someone recently said to me that German got used to the idea that its
0: security would be provided by the US, as you suggested, its energy by Russia, and its growth by China. And it has been a, a really huge adjustment to recognize that this model just doesn't work with today's Uh, circumstances. It is easy to see this as a a big error in retrospect. But did allies at the time make serious efforts to dissuade Germany from this course of action? I remember Obama being quite willing to disengage with over there. I remember the, the Cameron government being very friendly with Russian money.
1: Well, suddenly the Cameron government uh, felt at one point it was time to, I think, sort of bury the hatchet and just accept the inevitable that we should do more business with uh, Russia, but we, it didn't really get very far. In the case of the Germans, they did receive multiple warnings, and most particularly from the Balts, their Central European neighbours, I think from the UK to, to some extent. But all the time, they justified their position by saying that yes, we, we are going to continue buying you know, oil and gas from, from Russia because we see this as stabilizing, that it's mutually beneficial. And for a long time, it was possible to sustain that argument that this was the, one of the foundations of Europe's uh, relations with Russia. The, the Russians wanted the European market, uh, gas market, for example, and they needed that market and you know Gazprom was exporting what about a third of its gas and earning two thirds of its revenues from that business but you know what we've seen over the last year and i think for many analysts myself included because i I, spe- I had a spell in the russian oil and gas industry at one point it's it's very hard to get your head around the fact that the russians built up this business very successfully over 50 years it was profitable Uh, the gas business, not as lucrative, by the way, as the sale of oil and oil products, but profitable. And it gave Russia politically tremendous influence in Europe. And this has been thrown away 50 years' work in the matter of a few weeks. So Gazprom's exports to Europe halved last year. Its revenues in in January this year from from gas sales to Europe are 50% down on what they were the previous year. And it's very hard to see how this market is going to come back. Now, there are some who believe that German industry, in in a heartbeat, would love to buy cheap gas again from Russia. If and when this uh, terrible war comes to an end, we may see Russia selling more gas against Europe, but it's not going to be on the same scale because people have lost trust. It's just going to be too risky. And in the meantime, the Germans are building, for example, their LNG capacity. And they've moved at immense speed to get these floating uh, terminals functioning. There's going to be much more investment in that area. And uh, this has been the ultimate wake-up call.
0: I want to wrap things up by looking a little bit forward. Do you think that Germany actually gets it now? I I know you say that the changes um, have been implemented, which mean a diversification of, of energy supply, first and foremost which I think is a lesson a lot of uh, countries have learned. But is there a sense that Germany sees this as a bump on the road back to business as usual? Or will these
1: changes be radical and lasting? I think it's the latter. This is much more than a bump in the road uh, for Germany. There's um, a broad realisation that we are in a very deep crisis in relations with Russia because of the Uh, direction that um, Vladimir Putin has chosen to take the country, one of full-scale confrontation. He sees Russia as being at war with the West. And in fact, he has no way out of this situation in Ukraine. He has to keep fighting. And so this is going to go on, I believe, for a good long while. And I think the, the Germans are And what I find quite striking is that there is a much more knowledge about Ukraine now in Germany, much greater interest, indeed sympathy for Ukraine. And I think Germany's sort of historical mission is, in fact, no longer going to be just the cultivation of relations with Russia. It's going to be the rebuilding of Ukraine. Uh, this is going to be a tremendous business opportunity for Germany. It's going to be an investment in its security. And ultimately, if Ukraine transforms uh, successfully into a uh, democratic state integrated into Europe, which I believe it will at some point, then this will fundamentally change Russia's position in Europe and I think will exercise huge influence and a hopefully positive influence over the evol- evolution of Russia. One final question,
0: drawing um, as much on the book as on your wider experience, I think. Uh, some analysis suggests that the real issue uh, in this case was that everyone still looks to Washington for leadership in these things. Is it time for Europe to take a much more active role
1: in its own defence? Oh, it's definitely time, but we've been saying that for um probably decades. And the U.S. has, I think, regularly sought to become less engaged, but each time has had to come back into the picture. And it was very striking to see, you know, President Biden visiting Kiev. The Biden administration has been, it seems to me, really very cautious in its handling of the of, of the war in Ukraine, like the Germans and possibly influenced by the Germans, very concerned about the perceived escalation, I think rattled by some of these nuclear threats that have come from from Moscow. And it it's sort of almost felt as though the, the Germans and the Americans together would like to give Ukraine just enough weaponry to be able to fight to a standstill in the East and then to encourage some sort of peace. Many Russian commentators pointed out previously that the Minsk agreements that were put in place and negotiated uh, in the main by Angela Merkel in 2015, that were intended to at least freeze the conflict in in Donbass at the time, that they could not be implemented because the, the Americans were not part of the picture. It needed the Americans at the table to do this. And I think there's, there's, frankly, no escape there. Europe does not have the capacity at, the sta- at this stage to exercise that same level of influence. So it's very important uh, what happens in the United States um, over the next 18 months, and who will win the next presidential election.
0: John Luff, thank you so much for your time. It's
1: been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: The updated second edition of Germany's Russia Problem is out now. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day. So if you like her work, you can support her work on the funding platform Patreon for the measly price of a coffee. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with John Love's words. Russia, in its current condition and configuration, poses a serious threat to the stability of Europe. Russia's authoritarian system is weak at home, and yet strong enough to be a revanchist power, one able to fill power vacuums created by the USA and its allies in Africa, the Middle East, and parts of Central America. The focus of Russia's leadership is on survival. This is Alexandro in the bunker saying over and out. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well... I have John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned from the revolting French to some revolting women via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So download We Are History, our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell, and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andre. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. The lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. With additional
1: production from Kasia Tomasiewicz and me, Alex Reese. Music by Kenny Dickinson. Art direction by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.